2: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this episode, you'll hear Jay Lalonde. And she goes, excuse me, cabby. I'm going to go where he's going. And I'm like, "Uh, I'm going home. And she goes, "Uh uh-huh. And I go, okay, cool. (laughs) That and more. But before
3: that, I just want to say you might remember... Chris Castiglione was a member of the RISC team for a long time. He created our site at RISCguestShow.com. And I mentioned that Chris also went on to create an online class called One Month HTML. A lot of Risk fans took the class and commented just how easy it is to learn to code with the one-month video courses. Now the One Month guys have an even more popular course, One Month Rails. One Month Rails is a series of bite-sized video lessons and step-by-step tutorials that teach anyone, even a total beginner, how to build their first web app, like a simple photo-sharing app, in just 30 days. If you get stuck, there's always a real person there to help you out while you learn. In the One Month Rails class, you'll learn Ruby on Rails, HTML, CSS, Bootstrap, GitHub, and more. Over 14,000 students have already started building their dream app and taking their career to the next level. So what are you waiting for? Enroll now at one month slash risk loves you. Enrollment is typically ninety nine dollars, but if you join now, you'll get a one time discount of twenty five percent off for joining. And as always, you'll be helping support Risk. Again, it's one month rails. 30 minutes a day for 30 days and you'll actually build your first web app now here's the show
2: Hello,
3: kids! This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Tortue Supersonic behind me now, because who the fuck else would it be? You knew! You goddamn well knew, you Mickey-fickin' Risk listeners. That this was the place you could turn. This was the place to get everything rolling with a little Tortue Supersonic. Now then, today's episode is called Blown Away. Because every goddamn person on it was blown away in some ways or another, you know. Just like me. In this latest recording I've made of myself having an orgasm. That's it. Sounds like the, uh, the doctor in uh, Back to the Future. Gonna take you back <laughs> in my DeLorean. Just after finishing all that up. But for the time being, let's start all this up. What's this? Why, it's the risk storytelling program that's friendly and in just a bit we're going to hear from my very dear friend and actor writer director the brilliant mr joe shappa but before that the amazing voice of shana feinberg you know i am a total fetishist for the personality of a voice and here is one the Risk Live show in New York City, the People's Improv Theater. This is Shana Feinberg with a story we call Keeping the Frog. (laughs)
0: My career aspirations have always been really simple I've always wanted to make a living just being me I've always wanted to be paid handsomely to think how I think and talk how I talk and look how I look and I've been really lucky because sometimes that happens but until it happens with more regularity I've had to take a number of what you might call odd jobs and the oddest job that I've ever had was a year that I spent working as a personal assistant for an artist. The best way I could describe working for her is to say that it was like working for a five-year-old with a huge bank account (laughs) and a real fondness for marijuana. One of my tasks for her was that I would change her, seriously. Um, During the day, she wore, like, an auto mechanics jumpsuit, you know, those one-piece jumpsuits, and... To be fair, some of her work was dirty work, but like 10% of her work was dirty work. And 90% of her work was like her sitting on a pristine white couch dictating a to-do list to me. She had um, this beautiful studio in Dumbo with these huge windows that looked out onto the Brooklyn Bridge. And she would just sit on this white couch dictating list to me. And, you know list had like four items on them one of which was always score weed Um, so she would wear this one piece all day and at the end of the day I would unzip her and take her out of it and I would put her into a silk Donna Karen jumpsuit because she only wore jumpsuits which I understand I actually do understand that anyway so that was one task also I wrote the to do list as I said earlier and another thing I had to do for her was go through her email inbox, which she treated every single email as if it was from the White House. So that includes the 900 WordPress spam emails that we would get. We would, I would read them to her. I would say, okay, this looks like it's like a Viagra ad. It's like 40% off. This is like a vaginal reconstructive ad you know, for vaginal surgery. And she would be like, I think that's spam and I'd be like yes this is spam but, you know I always wanted to just like kind of delete everything she was like no you didn't know when there was going to be like a commission from Harvard hiding among these spam emails so we would, we would do that very slowly methodically go through her email inbox she was like the most unique the strangest human I have ever met she always wore these aviator sunglasses like mirrored aviator sunglasses and um one night She went out drinking, and the next day she came to the studio, and she had lost her aviator sunglasses. And she was, like, unhinged. Like, seriously, she had no idea, like, how to function, who she was, like, how to treat me. She was just, like at loose ends, and I was like, you have to go home, because you're a danger to yourself and me. So I took her downstairs, and I I hailed a cab that actually was, like, pulling up. This is, like, a detail that doesn't matter, but it's interesting to me. But Robin Williams gets out of the cab. (laughs) And, like, everyone in Dumbo is like, oh, my God, Robin Williams! And, like, they're all taking pictures of Robin Williams, and she could, like, she can't even see Robin Williams, you know? She gets into the cab, and as she pulls the door shut, she's like... I just need to get to a sunglasses hut and everything will be okay. And I'm like, yes, that's what you should do. During the year that I worked for her, she developed this hobby in which she took, like, regular dolls, like Barbie doll dolls, and transformed them into nuns. Now, this was not her art. This was literally just to blow off steam. And... That year, she also made me, or actually, I I should just say, she just made, first, she made it for herself, a doll that was a replica of my then-boyfriend. And when he and I got married, she gave it to us as a wedding gift. Now, my husband has an awesome bubble butt, and she managed to replicate that on this doll, which to me is, like, testament to what a good artist she is, you know? Anyway, so you get a a sense of who this person is. I could go on, because I worked for her for a year. So in the year that we worked together, we had like a bazillion absurd moments together, some of which were really sad, and some of which were hilarious. But the one that really stands out in my mind is this one day, we were at her studio, I was cleaning her computer keyboard with a Q-tip, you know, around each letter, because she wanted it really clean, which I also understand. And she was on her pristine white couch in her Dickies uniform. And sitting across from her was another artist, this guy Taylor. He was a southern guy. He's very tall and thin and chiseled, very handsome. He's like, he's so tall and thin that he was kind of like a hook at the top of his body. He was like, he's like folding in on himself. And he got his start in Mississippi sculpting teeth for dentists. But then he came up to New York and became an artiste. And he carried this, like, little leather purse under his arm always. And he rolled his own cigarettes. And he had, when he would drink coffee, it was, like, 75% sugar. So that, that's Taylor, okay? So the two of them are sitting there. They're trading mean email stories. Yeah. They're, they're telling each other, like, different mean emails that they've sent. And the artist tells him a story about this time when a guy bought her a frog. I don't know why, but he bought her a frog, and she sent him an email that said, fuck you, but I'm keeping the frog. And she's like cackling about this. She thinks this is hilarious. And she says, by the way, I spelled fuck the meanest way you could spell fuck, which is F-U-K. And so she and Taylor are like, oh, my God, this is hilarious. So she, like, repeats it again because it's such a good punchline. She says, fuck you, but I'm keeping the frog. And as she says it the second time, I look up, and as I look up, I see that in the window that she's sitting right in front of is a naked man on the edge of the Brooklyn Bridge, and he's about to jump. And I'm like, holy shit, look. The artist and Taylor look out the window, and they're like, oh, yeah, nice clouds. And the artist is like, I I used to know about clouds. And Taylor's like, is that a nimbus or cumulus? And I'm like, you guys, no, 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 can we get, like, focused for a second? Because there's actually, there's a naked guy who's about to kill himself. He's, like, standing right outside the window. And they're just like, they, they can't even hear me. They can't see the guy. They can't hear me. You know, it's like we're living in two separate worlds. So I run over to the window, and I'm thinking, like, well, maybe I should, like, tap on the window and be like, don't do it. But I'm like, that probably won't work. So I'm thinking, well, maybe I should, like, open the window and be like, you have so much to live for. But at the moment, the only thing I could think to live for was, like, Danny DeVito and dogs, which... (laughs) There'd be two things that I love, but I was like, what if I'm like you have so much to live for? Like Danny DeVito and dogs, and the guy's like, fuck Danny DeVito. And then he like plummets to his death, and like I'm partially like responsible, you know. So I'm like, I have an idea. Why don't I just call 911? So I run over, I get my phone, I dial 911 at this moment, at this exact moment. The artist and Taylor have now decided to take some sips of this tea that I'd made them like an hour earlier. And she says to me, this tea is cold. And I'm on the phone with 911, okay? Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, you know what? Just like give me five minutes and I'll make you some fresh tea. So the operator's like, 911, what's your emergency? And I'm like, um, there's a naked guy who looks like he's about to kill himself. And he's standing on the edge of the Brooklyn Bridge. And she's, like, asking me a million questions. And meanwhile, the, the artist is like, tell them about the cold tea. You know, like, to her, this is, like, hilarious. And meanwhile, she's discovered that the tea isn't just cold. It's actually old. She's like, you used old tea bags for my tea. And, and I'm like, there's a guy trying to kill himself, you know? And the, the operator's asking me a bazillion questions. They're still talking about clouds and old tea. And I'm just thinking, at this moment, I was like... I think I might be insane because there's two of them and the two of them don't see this guy. I mean, they're not thinking about him or any of that. So if I'm the odd man out, like maybe really I'm the one who's insane. But just as I think that like my brain is going to explode, the operator's like, okay, we dispatched someone. So thank you so much for calling. I hang up and like five helicopters swoop in. They get the guy from the Brooklyn bridge. They swoop away. It's all done in, like, three seconds. And I'm just like, holy cow. Like, that was really intense. So I sit down next to her on her white couch. And I, like, take a deep breath. And I'm just like, I really thought that guy was going to kill himself. And she's like, he wasn't going to kill himself. I could tell. He didn't have it in him. I'm like, okay. And she's like. But he is gonna feel like shit when he gets the bill for those helicopters. I'm like, what are you talking about? And she's like, well, when I tried to jump off the Brooklyn Bridge, I got an insane bill for the helicopters. I was like, you tried to jump off the Brooklyn Bridge? And she was like, of course I did. She's like, it's right there. So then she says, but she got the bill and she was like, this is an insane bill she said that she just was like fuck you and as soon as she said that like her face was like it was like rising up within her she like all of a sudden like had the best idea and she was like she, she did her own call back she basically was like I should have said fuck you but I'm keeping the frog and she and Taylor are like they, they think this is like the funniest thing ever and so meanwhile I'm like I am completely in la la land this is totally insane um, now, if you're curious, I was forced to go out and buy her some new tea bags and make her a fresh pot of new hot tea. And that, that was really how that moment ended for me. So thank you so much. Fuck you, but I'm keeping the frog. That's what you think. By the way, I spelled fuck the meanest way you could spell fuck. F-U-K.
4: My dad and I always had trouble um, connecting. And still do. We're adults now. And um,
0: <laughs>
4: when I was a kid, uh, I liked everything opposite that he would like. I, I liked making movies with the VHS camera. He didn't want to be in. I, I liked. Um, uh, I wasn't into sports, or I had no interest in the business he owned, which was a janitorial service. He still runs. I, um, he would take me on jobs of cleaning carpets in people's houses, and I would daydream rather than help him. And create stories in my mind of the people's photo- photographs that were on the mantle of their homes. But the one thing we did have in common was we loved to laugh. We loved to laugh. I remember one time uh, we were watching National Lampoon's Vacation, and there's one scene where Chevy Chase eats a sandwich, and then his wife says, um, These sandwiches are spoiled, the dog peed all over them. And I thought that was the funniest thing I have ever seen. And I remember. Laughing so hard, and my dad was laughing, and I, we, we felt connected. And uh, my dad was actually very funny and is very funny. Uh, he would do this bit where he hated, he hated the woman who worked the drive through at Dunkin' Donuts. She was an older woman. So every time he pulled up to Dunkin' Donuts, he would drive like this. And then when we got up there, she would be right there, and he'd drive like that, and he'd look at her and go, <gasps> every time <laughs> we went to dunkin donuts she was never like surprised she was just like oh just confused by it so in 6th grade there was an opportunity for me to participate in a talent show a sign went up and in a week this was a monday so in a week and the next monday there would be auditions for a talent show and I thought I would do stand-up comedy. Now, I had only seen stand-up on television a couple times. Once, Robin Williams was, was on the Good Morning America, which was my mother's favorite morning program. And he was hilarious then, what I remember in my mind. And he was just like riffing. He was like doing different voices like he was the devil and then he was like you know making fun of whoever Joan London and then I remember him running up the stairs and there was like a fake door and he's like what's this, this is a stair to nowhere and opening it up and it just seemed so easy and fun and my whole family was laughing and my dad was laughing and then another time I saw Dennis Miller the stand up on TV talking about how he does his act and his act is he doesn't really note, um, acknowledge the audience he just sort of talks out and I was like That's how you do comedy, you just ignore it, you just talk out, and then you riff. You just come up with it on the spot. Don't prepare. (laughs) So, I go to sign up, and put my name up on the sheet, and what you're gonna do, and my friend's like, "Um, you're not gonna do stand-up comedy, are you? You are not funny. (laughs) Now, up until this point, Nick Maldonado was the funniest kid in the class, because he had amazing... Pee-wee Herman impression his laugh sounded just like Pee-wee Herman and my friend was like not even Nick Maldonado is signing up to do stand-up comedy Why would you stand up to do stand-up comedy and I was like this is gonna be easy? (laughs) So I had a whole week to prepare my act and I did no work I did no work to prepare Sunday night and I'm starting to get the panicky feeling like you had a a paper to do and you did none of it. And I was like, well, I should at least write one joke. So this is the joke. I was riding the tractor and I hit a tree and I fell off the tractor. End of joke. (laughs) Comedy is not based in desperation and that is a desperate joke. So I decided to try it out. I went downstairs. My mother was cooking pasta. And I walked in. And I was like, Mom, what do you think of this joke I'm about to tell 500 of my peers tomorrow at an audition for a talent show? And I told her the joke. And first, her eyes showed disappointment. <laughs> then pity. And then she was like, No, oh, you could do it. Yeah, see Uh. what happens. And I got super nervous and started to panic. But I remembered that I had gotten juggling balls for Christmas. So I ran upstairs. And I thought, well, if I'm not going to... I could tell jokes, but what will distract them from my material is the fact that I'm an amazing juggler. (laughs) So I went upstairs and the juggling balls were under the guitar my parents had bought me and I took one lesson and the ventriloquist dummy my parents had bought me and took no lessons and quit the minute they gave it to me so I took those things out of the way got the juggling balls opened up the instructions found out juggling is super hard so I was like you know what Robin Williams can make it up, so can old Joe Shappa. So I got to the bus stop the next day, and there was this older woman there, uh, older woman, older uh, student girl, <laughs> uh, Colleen Donegan, and I was telling her what I was going to do, and I was like, kind of panicking, so I was like babbling. I was like, I'm doing stand-up today for the talent show, and she was like, uh, oh, man, you know what you should have done? Last night, you should have just watched Eddie Murphy's Raw and done that. And I was like, Eddie Murphy's Raw? My parents don't even let me watch PG-13 movies. How am I going to watch Eddie Murphy's Raw? I
1: don't
4: even know who Eddie Murphy was. The The only movies we sort of watched were like Disney movies with Dick Van Dyke. And I think we watched like half of Mr. Mom until they get to the strip club. And then we weren't allowed to watch the rest of it. So I got to school. And it was the fastest day of school I have ever experienced. Three o'clock came like nothing. So my last class is English class. And uh, I had Mrs. Palmucci who was very nice and I loved English and I loved um, getting the Scholastics magazine. I loved reading out loud and I killed it with the sentence structure and all that stuff. I loved it. So it's the end of class and I'm sweating and I... Burst into tears. And I'm like, Mrs. Palmucci, I am about to do stand-up and I am so nervous. She's like, you know what? Just go down there, I'm sure you're gonna be fine. And from in there, I like stopped crying. I was like, You're right, I'm gonna be fine, because when I get down there, I'm gonna just start talking and it's gonna be hilarious. So I walked down to the gym. Now, auditions were open. So there was more people in the gym than would actually see the show in two weeks. So there was like 500 kids, probably 400 of the girls I had crushes on. <laughs> and they were all on the panel to judge. And before I went on, <laughs> these two girls did an amazing like aerial gymnastics routine that was mind blowing, at least to me, in sixth grade. So of course, I have my juggling balls, because I figure, I might start juggling <laughs> when I get up there. And I'm panicked. But I'm just like, just like Dennis Miller said, I'm just going to start talking right out like there's no audience. And I'm going to be fine. I got up there. And I'm just, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm looking out. And I realized, oh, this is, this is not going to turn out good. <laughs> and I said, I'm so sorry, I can't do this. And I walked out. So, my mom picked me up and I told her what happened. And she was like, I don't think she knew what to say. Because, like, I don't even think she understood what stand-up comedy was. I, I, I think she just understood, thought I was going up and talking as well. She's like, okay, that's fine. And I was like, oh, I'm, my dad is going to be super disappointed. Right? So, get home, tell him my dad, and my dad's like tired from work, and he's like, oh, he was always angry at at coming home from work. And I was like telling him about it, and he was like, ugh, well, all right. And then just like walked into the living room, and I was crushed. So the elephant in the room here is, I do comedy now for a living. I am a comedian. And the only way I was able to be a comedian or do comedy was to have that experience because I, from that moment on, I worked really hard to learn how to be funny. And I also learned that the only person I needed to impress was myself before I impressed someone else. Thank you.
3: This is risk this is the ohms behind me now and we just heard from my good friend joe shapa you can find him at joeschiappa i worked very closely with joe a couple years ago on a couple projects that meant the world to me and he was just so wonderful such a talented guy and just before that, a little interstitial called Frog Fuck by Jeff Barr, the editor of all Risk episodes and the radio style stories and the interstitials. Who could ask for more? And I got to tell you that this summer has been the best yet that we've had at the Story Studio. We've had a couple of workshops here in town, in New York, and in Los Angeles, and also several corporate workshops, which have just been so much fun, so powerful, so helpful to the people that were a part of it all. There's something really special about ending a workshop and agreeing that it was amazingly fun and inspiring, and at the same time, Very, very practical in the way that you can use what you learn there the next day, the next week, and for the rest of your life. And we have so much starting in September. On September 10th, we have a six-session Level 1 with Don Fraser in New York City, also a two-day with Don on the 13th, a two-day with Julia Wiedemann on the 20th, and a one-day storytelling for business workshop with Don Fraser on the 20th as well. Meanwhile, in Los Angeles, on September 27th, a two-day storytelling workshop with Beowulf Jones out there. The first few that Beowulf has done out there have been tremendous successes. A lot of people have been featured on the podcast already that took those two days with Beowulf out there in L.A. There's also the one-on-ones that you can do over Skype with me. Or our online video course that you can take with your own workbook of exercises to do in your own time. Or of course, the corporate workshops that we do at thestorystudio.org. Believe me, working on your communication skills and developing a personal understanding of the emotional essence of narratives will transform your life. Stories are the way... We get at meaning and connect with others and inspire change. Whether you're more extroverted or introverted, storytelling is the key to being trusted, understood, and admired. So just remember, whoever you are, there's something of profound worth to you at thestorystudio.org. In just a bit, we're going to hear from Jay Lalonde, who I think I met Jay for the very first time at an orgy in Brooklyn. But before that, we're going to hear from Catherine Heller, who I pretty much fell in love with, I think, on stage. We were um, both being interviewed at the same time on a uh, show hosted by Chemda of Keith and the Girl, and I knew right away, I have to have Catherine on the show. Here she is now at the Risk Live show in New York City at the People's Improv Theater with a story we call Snowball.
1: So um, I'm an actor, and when I was in my early 20s, I would take any acting job I could get. This is before I joined the union, so anything at all. I remember once I was in an improv show at a dodgy, dodgy theater, and I actually raced and, and fought a water bug to the stage and killed it. Because I knew I could yes end better than that shit could. Yeah, even though most of you know I hate water bugs, they're my biggest fear. but I was like, I know Improv better than you, motherfucker. And, and I just, I would take any job. That job didn't even pay, it was a bringer show. I was even in a, a short film once that was directed and produced by this woman whose father paid for it. And I'm pretty sure he was in the mafia because we were uh, shooting at this gorgeous house in Long Island one day and we thought they were doing drug deals in the basement because they were doing drug deals in the basement. And they said to us, cut, cut. We are like, what's up? And they go, the cops are on their way. Just... Don't worry about it. And we were like, what? what, what?" And they said, no, 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 don't worry about it. Just stay here. We're like, we do not want to stay here. Um, So I took any job, paying or not. And then finally, I got cast in an amazing show for the first ever gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender fringe festival, the Fresh Fruit Festival. It started many years ago. I don't know if you guys know it. It's amazing. And it was a beautiful, beautiful love story about this guy who figures out he's in love with a man and he didn't know he was gay and I played I was his co-star I played his girlfriend who didn't know he was gay but I was really supportive and luckily I'm method so um, you know I went back to my college days where that really happened thank you Wesley for teaching me all about that but it was a beautiful beautiful play but at the same time it was also a little bit Unorthodox. It was a little bit strange. There were dream sequences. There were nudity. Um, as an example, I was asked during the audition, would you be okay with taking your top off, ripping a man naked, and uh, simulating anal sex, giving it to him? And I was like, yeah, sure, all right. You know. So they were like, you got the, you got the part. So um, it was great. But the only problem was there was that scene, a dream sequence, where I had to rip this guy's clothes off, rip my top off, bend him over, and pretend to fuck him in the ass, while there's a smoke machine on, to nine-inch nails as closer. <laughs> you know, it's like, I want to fuck you like an animal. Yes, I see. And by the way, um, is there any other way to fuck than like an animal? I don't know, is there? Because I'm not, I'm not. All right, so. I want to feel you from the inside. That's, that's how you do it? Okay. So, I was okay with that. And I told my mother about this, and she's very progressive. She's like, oh, I grew up in the 60s, I smoked a marijuana cigarette, I can handle this show, so whatever. (laughs) I wasn't worried about that so much as the choreography. Because I cannot, for the life of me, remember choreography. So it got to the point where the choreographer was so frustrated with me, they said, what is your problem? I said... I can't remember things, but I have OCD and I'm weird and I know numbers, and he said, great. And they taught me the song and what to do with numbers. So I literally had to remember, and take his shirt off, six, seven, eight, bend him over, two, three, four, take his clothes off, six, seven, eight, shove his face in your pussy, seven, two, nine. You're like, and I, you know, I wanna fuck it. And that is how I memorized that scene, right? And again, not nervous about the show at all. Now, my co-star we'll call him Robbie, uh, was nervous about the scene for a separate reason. It's because he was worried he didn't have a big enough penis. And he was worried because he didn't have a big enough penis. (laughs) And I felt bad for him because he's like, Catherine, I'm going to be on stage in front of all of these really hot gay men. And by the way, the show was getting so much press. We had our own float in the gay pride parade. I wasn't allowed to be on the float. For some reason, they made the women uh, run around in a G-string and pasties handing out flyers for the show. I have never gotten women kissing my tits so much in my life, and I went to college, okay? So (laughs) it was pretty awesome. But there was so much buzz for the show that Robbie was like, Catherine, they're going to see how little my dick is on stage. And I was like, I don't know what to tell you. I'm just worried about the choreography and bending you over six, seven, eight. So his way of dealing with that scene... Well, first he tried masturbating a little bit beforehand, make it a little bit bigger, and the director's like, oh, hell no. And then there was one day where he tried a cock ring but didn't tell anyone. And I got the best note I ever heard at a rehearsal, not aimed towards me, was, uh, Robbie, we can see the cock ring, nix it. And um, so Robbie decided what he would do, would go back to masturbating but not tell anyone and be like... Catherine, before the scene, I'm going to rub myself, not to completion, but just don't tell the director. And I was like, listen, it's between us. I don't give a shit. I'm still, you know, memorizing the song in my head. Opening night comes around, and the show is going great. I mean, nothing could possibly go wrong. The crowd is loving it. It's a freaky show, but it's awesome, and it's weird, and there's songs and dance numbers. And finally, we get to the big climax, this dream sequence where I fuck him in the ass and I'm just focused, and I'm backstage, and we're on uh, stage left, and there were the wings, and there was only me and Robbie at the time. No one else could see us, because it was a very small theater in the back. Ten seconds before we're about to go on stage, I'm getting ready, and Robbie's doing his thing, and I hear him go, oh, okay. And I'm, I'm doing everything but look at that, going like, oh, look at the wall. I never realized walls did those things. That's everything but, hey, it's ceilings or things. And, you know, because I'm nice. And I hear him five seconds before we go on stage. I'm Oh, God, no. And I look over, and this all happens in slow motion. He had come in his hands, and we're right about to go on stage. And I see a towel from somewhere, and I grab it. And I'm throwing it, and in slow motion, before he can grab the towel, he looks at me, and he just starts eating it. Eating it, eating it, eating it. And I was like, what? And they're like, see, go. And we get on stage. And, I wanna violate you. I Okay, so I literally just couldn't even think about what I saw. Now, mind you, I was really, really young, so I'd never seen a guy eat his own cum before. I know that's a thing now, and now I'm also kind of really into it, fellas. But back then, I was so young and innocent, and I was like, oh, God, and I promised myself I would never ever tell anyone what I saw because Robbie would be so embarrassed and the show finished standing ovation it was amazing there was press there huge after party and I was like we got through it I completely forgot about it I, I blacked it out and I'm at the closing party everyone's a little drunk having a great time my friends were there my mom was like that was great you really fucked the guy in the ass really good I was like I know thank you mom it's now two hours in, and everyone's wasted going home. And I walk by the table of the producer, the director, the writer, and the wardrobe guy. And they're all sipping on their martinis, laughing uproariously, pointing at me. And I was like, what could possibly this be about? And I went up, and they said, we heard about what happened with Robbie. Apparently, the wardrobe guy saw behind the wings and told everybody. So I said, oh, haha, must have been embarrassing for him. And they go, Catherine... That's not the worst part. I was like, what could the worst part possibly be? And they said, you don't remember? You ate it. Let me go back. I was so focused on the choreography and opening night, I forgot that one of the choreography moves was pull his head back, six, seven, eight, lick the inside of his mouth, two, three, four. I had snowballed myself. (laughs) Now, my favorite note that I got a few days ago from Mr. Kevin Allison after telling him this story was, uh, technically, Catherine, just so you know, um, it's not snowballing if he's swallowed, and there's going to be a few people in the audience who are going to want to know that, so just so you know, let's call it frosting, okay? But the point is I ate his cum. (laughs) And forgot about it. So I became the butt of the joke. Fine. I go home that night and my boyfriend, who couldn't make it, he had to bartend that night. He was like, how'd the show go, honey, leaning for a kiss? I was like, fine, I gotta go brush my teeth. And like, I didn't want to tell anyone. And I finally told the story to people I bartended for. And it became really annoying because my customers would come in with new people. And they'd be like, hey, Catherine, tell the story about the time that you ate the guy's cum by accident. And I was like, you just told the story. There's no, <laughs> no point. So I stopped telling the story until a few years ago. I was contacted by a friend and they said, Okay, Catherine, Backstage magazine, which is a trade paper for auditions, is giving out one hundred dollars for the best opening night story. And I was like, got this. So I wrote into the editor and I was like, All right, so opening night, had to, you know, rip a guy naked, simulate anal sex, topless, accidentally don't come, boom, send. I get an email back from the editor two days later And I know this guy personally And he wrote back, Catherine, LOL Give me a break, we all know that that didn't possibly happen So the good news you guys is I guess it never happened
0: Thank you
2: Hey there, guys. So uh, today I'm going to teach you guys how to make the perfect snowball. What you might want to do is you might want to actually make sure the guy feels it. You do this with your fingers
1: snowball. And snowball.
2: Snowball. <laughs> That's beautiful. I would like to tell you a story that I call holy water, okay? It's called holy water. The first week when you move to New York City, you remember it. Do you remember it? Say, I... You people didn't do it well enough then. (laughs) When you move to New York City, you romanticize this, this move over here. You work hard, you play harder, you work hard, you play harder. And boy, did I do both. And I was like, I was ready to take the world on. We are in the center of the world. New York City, let's do this. So in my first week, I worked hard and I played harder. And after one night of playing, I was ready to call it a night. I was heading to this cab, but before I tell you about this cab, I want to tell you about the place that I was subleasing. It was in the Upper East Side, and it belonged to this evangelical 40-year-old Christian, this uh, lovely friend of mine, and for some reason, she let me stay in her apartment. She is legitimately a virgin, by the way. I don't pass judgment on her. She's like a Christian's Christian, right? She has, like, Jesus figurines all over the house. Like, she, like, if Jesus had Comic-Con, she would be, like, the head of the fucking... There's, like, scripture on every single wall. There has never been any sin in this place until I moved in. (laughs) I worked hard. I played harder. So I'm ready to call it a night after a few drinks with some buddies. I see this cab. Usually you would hail for a cab, but instead, no, the cab has its light on right in front of me. I'm like, cool. I hop in. I hop in the cab. The cabbie locks the door immediately. I was like, oh, I'm not from New York, but that seems a little odd. You can see the light kind of shining on his face. He's kind of angry. And then I look over to my left and I see this beautiful woman sitting in the cab with me who had been locked in there. It turns out she had left all forms of payment upstairs. We were parked at her apartment, and the cabbie was not letting her out. She had no credit cards. She had no cash, and they were bickering and fighting, and I don't know for how long, but it was ready to come to blows, people. all right? So I was like, excuse me, miss, this is your cab. I'll just hop out. No, the doors are locked. We're all stuck in this cab together. (laughs) This woman is stunning. She has this skin tight red dress on. Her breasts are completely up around her chin. Her hair looks like she just got out of a herbal essence commercial, you know? Her lipstick is perfectly applied on these like very pouty lips that looks like she could suck the color out of a marble, right? She has these four inch stilettos, not on her feet. They are grasping her feet. Like, please don't, don't let go. Her legs are long. Her dress is so short, I can see her cervix. Uh. Some guys are going to Google that tonight, and they're going to be like, anatomy. and Cervix is way up there. Is what, that's what he meant by that.
0: <laughs>
2: I'm on a show full of women, by the way. I don't know if you could tell, but uh, I'm going to get points backstage for that shit. there. Right? Uh, uh. So there she is. I'm in this cab with her. After they're done bickering after a while, they're, she's pouting and he's pissed. And I'm like, look, miss, I'm from Oregon. We have this thing where I'm from where we, we pay it forward. We, you know, pass the favor for it. I'll pick up your tab. As it turns out, no one in New York does that shit. <laughs> but she looked at me like I was completely naive. And guess what I was? I just moved to New York. I had no idea how the system went. But here I am, trying to be a gentleman, trying to pick up her tab, go, just go home. So she starts scooting closer to me, and then she takes a sharp left towards that weird window that cabbies have. She pokes her head through that, and her ass is now, like, in my face. I'm like, whoa, Jesus. And she goes, excuse me, cabbie, I'm going to go where he's going. And I'm like, "Uh, I'm going home. And she goes, "Uh uh-huh. And I go, okay, cool. (laughs) New York concrete jungle where dreams are made of. (laughs) So we go up to the Upper East Side. We get out of the cab. We gallivant upstairs, and I'm excited as one could imagine. We go into the apartment. As make yourself at home, she does. She sits on the couch, I go into the kitchen. I'm like, okay, maybe I'll get some nightcaps. Who knows where this night is going? I have a pretty good idea, (laughs) and I like it. I go grab two glasses of wine, and I bring it out into the living room where she's sitting on the couch, and she is no longer wearing anything. The only thing she's wearing are those four-inch stilettos still just grasping her beautiful legs and feet, just like that, and I'm like, oh, 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 hello, hi, hello. I sit next to her on the couch. I hand her the glass. I take a swig. She puts the glass down after taking one sip, reaches into her purse, pulls out this vial, unscrews the vial, and lays the longest line of narcotics I've ever seen in my entire life on this, like, three-foot glass table in this evangelical Christian's living room. She smiles at me. And then she rolls up a dollar and goes, snorts three feet of narcotics. Now, I don't do drugs. I'm an I'm a honest, hardworking boy from Oregon, but she didn't even offer me any. It's impolite. You agree? She wipes it from her face. We're still sitting on the couch. She grabs the glass of wine. I grab mine. She's very nonchalant about this, by the way. She's just snorted a David Lee roth size line like she's fucking Tony Montana and Scarface. And she goes, she has the actual nerve to say, cheers. Like, cheers. I take a swig, put my... Wine glass down. She puts hers down. Then she cocks her leg over my body with her stilettos on and is now straddling me. And she's going to town. Tits flying all over my face. Herbal essence, hair blowing in the wind, as you can imagine. She's going to town. And I'm like, oh, okay. This is, this is cool. I was like, oh, wait, wait. Don't, don't spill the wine because, you know, Jesus' blood is going to get everywhere. and That's going to be bad. I'm going to have to explain that. And then she starts grabbing my neck and choking the shit out of me like I'm a dead duck, you know? Like She's got this like UFC grip on my neck, taking every piece of oxygen out of my lungs. Turns out I kind of like it. Uh, <laughs> it's never happened to me before. Welcome to New York. Yes. Once I catch my breath, things settle down. We gather our, our, our stuff and we I, I watch her scamper off into the bedroom. She turns back around and gives me one of the fingers like, come here, big daddy. Except more like, come here, just come here. And I'm like...
3: <laughs>
2: and I'm like, okay, all right. Yeah. We go back into the bedroom. We lay on the bed. Now, I'm going to spare you some details about my sexual proclivities. I will tell you this, though. We were wrapped in the throes of passion, people. All right? It got hot in there. Now, keep in mind, this is a 40-year-old virgin evangelical Christian's house. So, this is like, her bedroom is like a cathedral. There's stained glass against scripture on the walls, Jesus figurines everywhere. Like, she, like, kisses every one of these fucking things before she goes to bed. And here I am, introducing a whole new type of sin into this bedroom. We're wrapped in the throes of passion. We're getting on. I... Place myself into her. I'm a gentleman. I know. I know. After a while, she seems to be really, really enjoying it because all of a sudden, I I feel this pressure, and I don't mean emotional. I felt that too, but this physical pressure on my penis that I've never felt in my entire life. What is what is happening right now? So I take a step back, pull out, and in an instant. This woman who I just met in a taxi cab Sprays all over the place Like she's a fucking Brooklyn fire hydrant During the summer All over the scripture on the walls I'm like in the spray And it's like Everywhere I'm like in the middle of the spray Stop, stop And I feel like one of those kids You think is going to get hit by traffic You're like, quit it she sprays all over Jesus at the foot of the bed on the cross. And Jesus is like crying now and he's like nodding his head like, oh, no. I got a, I got a devil on my left shoulder like, yeah, that a boy. And an angel on my right shoulder like, motherfucker, what are you doing? Things calmed down. I've, I've, I've heard of this sort of thing before. I may have seen it like in one of those crazy YouTube videos, but I've never actually experienced it myself. It was, it was bizarre. I've never been with someone like that. But I wanted to be respectful, and I wanted it to kind of be a moment, because it was my first week in New York, and I'm like, New York chicks seem crazy. <laughs> And so there we are. We're laying, more like floating, in bed. And um, thank you three people who understood that.
0: It's
2: very uh, weird. Uh, This is how romantic I am, ladies. Uh, We both slept in the wet spot that night, huh? Eh? I'll see you after the show. (laughs) We wake up in the morning. She's still passed out, right? She's a little hungover, as you can imagine. I get up. I go and get her water because I was like she's probably dehydrated after (laughs) I grew up with a single mother she taught me to be a gentleman so I was like you know I should probably make some breakfast so I made breakfast and I asked myself what does a squirter eat for breakfast (laughs) turns out scrambled eggs actually scrambled eggs is what they eat for breakfast She uh, wakes up, we eat breakfast, she drinks a lot of water, <laughs> we put on our clothes, we're completely disheveled, her dress is like sideways, this hot like dress I thought the night before was hot, she actually, it's like torn up and it looks like she's Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean, oh, you know, yeah. like her her... Her, her eye makeup is all smeared, and now her lipstick that used to be perfectly applied is all over her face, and her hair is quaffed in a way I can't even really describe through science even. And, and I'm no better. I smell, and I'm gross, and I partied all night. But in a weird way, it was kind of sweet and romantic in my first week in New York City. So we head downstairs. We're both holding each other up, as you should when you're that fucked up. I hail for a cab. I put this lady... And I do don't—I actually never got her name. We'll just call her Lady. Um, <laughs> I put Lady in the cab. And uh, I kiss her goodbye. I shut the door behind her. And she starts driving away. And then I see this window roll down. And she sticks her head out the window, trying to sober up like she's a lost dog who finally found home, you know, and like... She turns and she smiles and she gives me a wave back and I'm like like she's on a float in Macy's Day Parade, you know. Like and I'm like, oh yeah, hey, hey. And as I'm sitting there waving to her goodbye, I think, shit, I never gave her any money for the cab. I hope she got home okay. I'm Jay Lalon. Thank you all very much.
3: Some words to jump in me. We met by a trick of fate. French need me, my sailor may. This week's episode, folks, this is Camera Obscura behind me now, and that was Jay Lalonde we just heard. Now, listen, motherfuckers in San Francisco, California, we are coming your way on September 18th, and here's what we need we need your pitches. The theme that night is trigger warning, which is a cutesy way of saying we want stories that are so shockingly filthy. Whatever kinky tales you might have that cross the line from titillating to, oh my dear God, I just don't know. That's what we want to hear, San Francisco, your craziest sex stories. We're doing this show on the 18th with Body Storytelling, one of our very favorite storytelling shows in the world, hosted by the gloriously feral... (laughs) Dixie De La Tour and I'll be hosting right alongside her. So listen, we want the kinkiest kinksters of San Francisco to pitch us your stories. Write to me directly at kevinatrisk showcom and tell me about the most emotionally interesting sexy situations you've been in. And I don't care what the rest of your fulsome street weekend plans are. Get to the goddamn RISK show on September 18th, my fine feathered friends. Portland, Oregon! RISK will be right up in your bowels on (laughs) September 17th. And the theme that night is trash. Give it to us, Portland. Give us the stories of your trashy people, your trashy times, and your trashy trash. Email me at kevin at risk-show.com if you want to be a part of that Risk Portland show. On what? On September 17th. Oh, and hey there. Speaking of seventeenth. How about old October 17th, when we'll be in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania? (laughs) Why, hello there, Pittsburgh peeps. The theme when we come to old Pittsburgh, PA, is terror. So send me your pictures on the times in your life when you were most afraid. Guys, listen we don't care if you're in vietnam or japan or korea or um the philippines maybe you're in china it could very well be you're in taiwan we don't care the point is singapore laos cambodia we welcome pitches from all of you you might be thinking do you have anything against pitches that come from uh, Hong Kong or Bangkok or Macau? Absolutely not! It doesn't goddamn well matter where you're writing from. Just pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. And here, just for fun, is another recording of me having an orgasm. Oh! <sighs> folks today's the day take a risk pittsburgh we're coming to you on the 17th of september or no of uh, what october oh my sweet my sweet holy
4: christ